So, have you ever struggled with forgiving someone? Maybe they wronged you once or twice or three times. Maybe they did that. Maybe they, I don't know, did something horrible to you or maybe it just felt horrible at the time. I remember when I was a kid, I think I was like in second grade. And I had this Garfield pencil topper. It was just like this little plastic Garfield that sat on the end of my pencil. And man, I loved that thing. And I thought it was so cool. And in second grade, it was the coolest thing ever. And someone stole it. So I, I launched my own Scooby-Doo Hardy Boys uh, investigation with my friend Rachel. She was my, my first friend, one of my best friends. And so she and I launched an investigation. We like kind of set up a sting operation with some other like kind of cool school equipment. I was thinking about this when we were buying school accessories the other day for, for the kids, and I was thinking to myself, man, that pencil topper was the bee's knees. It was the best thing ever, and I wanted to get it back. And so eventually we found out who took that pencil topper, and I got it back, and they got in a little bit of trouble, and you know, it was big drama in my second grade world. But the funniest thing, years later, when I was maybe 16 years old, I'd be at the high school football game or whatever, and I would see that person from my second grade class, and for whatever reason in my mind, I'd be like, no, there's so-and-so who stole my Garfield pencil topper. Like it even mattered at that point in my life. Because that pencil topper, I liked it, but when I was done with it or had something, I had a friend, and his got lost, so I gave it to my friend, and then he kept it, and he used it, but I, it was mine. I chose to give it away. It was my pencil topper, and it was just funny how... I got so wound up about that even years later, like it mattered. But the funny thing is there are things that happen to us in life that aren't funny at all. And they're real things, and they hurt us. And years later, they can come and bubble up into our lives out of nowhere, and we can learn that forgiveness is a tricky thing. It's a difficult and painful Sometimes even it feels like a lifelong process, a lifelong thing. We want to do it. We want to experience it. But sometimes we feel that we get hurt so deeply or perhaps even so often that it's hard. Forgiveness is a difficult thing and it's certainly strained in our world today. We struggle with it. And there's so many reasons that we struggle with it, but the deepest and the most profound reason we struggle with it is because forgiveness is something that goes against the grain of our human nature and our human experience as sinful people living in a sinful world. We struggle with it. Sinfulness, it's holistic. It affects all of us. And forgiveness is holistic. It transforms all of us and relieves us of the weight of that sin. But we find it so hard to experience forgiveness ourselves and to practice and to give forgiveness to other people. And the thing about unforgiveness, the inability or the unwillingness to give others forgiveness or to accept it ourselves, unforgiveness in our lives always leads, always leads to accusation. That's who the devil is, the father of sin. He is the father of accusation. And if you see our world today, there's somewhat of a mob mentality. We often immediately accuse and declare folks guilty. In our world today, we call that cancel culture. If someone says or does something, there's no room for them to be human. 
And sometimes, let's admit it, there's some pretty horrible things, and sometimes they're maybe not big things at all, but it doesn't matter. If you do certain things in our world today, they're unforgivable. Now, I grant you, there's some horrible things that happen in our world, but we live in a time when if you step on the wrong thing, or if you say the wrong thing, or if you don't believe the right thing, or buy into the right idea, someone will go out of their way to hurt you, to to destroy your life. We're seeing that in the world around us. And the funny thing about those who don't know forgiveness or don't even know they need forgiveness, they don't practice forgiveness. It's a very interesting thing in our world today. As much as we're willing to accuse other people, we don't accept our own responsibility in sin. We never consider our own faults, but we always seem to see the faults of other people. And since we don't understand our own sinfulness in our world today, since we don't understand that people are inherently messed up, we've tried to erase this idea of sin, but yet we've elevated this idea of accusation. Other sins, they deserve to be called out. They have the real issues, not us. And while they deserve to be punished and they get what they deserve, you know what? We deserve some faith, some uh, maybe some forgiveness, some, some extra understanding because people don't understand how hard our lives have been. It's amazing in this world where we seek to have justice how we seem to create nothing but accusation and injustice. It's amazing. It really is. But in Jesus' day, much like our own, they struggled with sin. They struggled with the same self-righteousness we struggle with in our world today. And like us, they too struggled with forgiveness. So much so that they tried to define every aspect of life, define everything as really right or really wrong with laws. They became a very litigious, a very legalistic society. That was the nature of the Pharisees that Jesus has been challenging time and time again in these parables that we have been learning about. Week after week, we see Jesus challenging them. And he presents a completely new way to understand God when he comes. It's not that these Old Testament laws the Pharisees talked about, it's not that those laws didn't matter. Jesus did not come to deny those laws, but he came to complete them with God's intended purposes that Jesus himself would complete perfectly because we are not perfect, and that's the problem in our world today. We think we're so good and so together. We don't believe in the sinfulness of humanity. We've lost that God-ordained biblical view of the world around us. It's messing everything up. It's messing it all up, but yet unforgiveness is real. Even for those of us that know we're sinful beings, it's real. And the questions we have to ask ourselves today are, have you struggled or have I struggled with forgiving someone? Have we struggled with that in our lives? And I'm not talking about the kind of things I was talking about, the pencil stopper, a pencil topper, but something else. And then how are we to love, live, and forgive like Jesus if we're struggling with that in our world today? Have you struggled with forgiving someone? And if so, you understand how hard it is. And if you've done that, you have to answer that question. And we're going to look at that today. How do we love? How do we live? And how do we forgive like Jesus? Because we're going to see today in this parable we're going to look at from Matthew 18 that Jesus wants us to understand that forgiveness is both spiritual 
and it's practical. And we have to understand it in both spiritual and practical terms. And so we're going to do this in light of God's mercy. As Christians, we understand God has given us great mercy. He has given us absolute forgiveness, though we don't deserve it. We talked about that for the last several weeks in the parables we've considered. How do we love? How do we live and forgive like Jesus? Let's look today at Matthew 18, starting in verse 21 through 35. We're going to look at the parable here of the unmerciful servant and learn about how we love, live, and forgive like Jesus. Let's read that together now. Then Peter approached him and asked, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? I tell you, Not as many as seven, Jesus replied, but 70 times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents was bought before him. Since he did not have the money to pay it back, his master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. At this, the servant fell face down before him and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. That servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He grabbed him, started choking him, and said, Pay what you owe. At this, his fellow servant fell down and began begging him, Be patient with me, and I will pay you back. But he wasn't willing. Instead, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed. When the other servants saw that what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Then after he summoned him, his master said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And because he was angry, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother and sister from your heart. This is God's holy word. It's a powerful story. It's something that we can see in our world today. So many of these parables translate into our lives today. So let's talk a little bit about the circumstances that led to this parable that was being told. And then we're going to look at this parable in light of Jesus' hearers, his disciples and others that were there listening and how in their culture they would have heard this parable. And then lastly, we're going to see how to put this truth into action. Jesus is giving us spiritual and practical truth as we talked about. How do we put that into action in our lives today? So what happened that made this parable such a a teachable moment? So let's look here at uh, verses 21 and 22. When Peter comes to Jesus to discuss forgiveness. So Peter comes, he approaches him and asks, Lord, how many times must I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? As many as seven times? Jesus says, he says, I tell you not as much, as many as seven, he says, but 70 times seven. Wow, that's a lot. 70 times seven. Think about that. He says 70 times seven. He really shares that with us. It's amazing how he shares that. He He gives this incredible definition. There's a lot packed into this. And it comes out of this, what we call Second Temple Judaism. So we're going to look at this here. And in this time of Jesus', Peter is coming to him with a popular rabbinical idea from this guy. It's Rabbi Jos Ben Hanina. And he would say it like this. 
If a man commits an offense once, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, the rabbi taught, they forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, they forgive him. The fourth time, they do not forgive him. So that was a popular rabbinical teaching in Jesus' day. That was a popular teaching that a rabbi would have given back then in Jesus' day. He would have said to them, guy, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. No, he said, three times you forgive somebody, but three's it. Three strikes, you're out. The fourth time, you don't have to forgive him. Now, Peter here has been watching Jesus. He's been watching how he forgives and has mercy and teaches, and Peter's trying to follow Jesus. He wants to be obedient, so the rabbi says three times, Peter's going to go double that more. He's going to say, you know what, Jesus? I know it's probably not three times, so it's probably not even six times, so is it like seven times? Like, how far do I go? So Peter's trying to shoot way beyond what people practice in Jesus' day, what the rabbis taught in Jesus' day. He says seven times, and that's far more than the understanding. The Torah, the Old Testament law translated by the Pharisees, by the rabbis, they would say four is past the limit. Peter wants to go to seven, and Jesus says no. No, he says, you know, it's more like 70 times seven. Now, before you get off the live stream on your phone or your tablet or whatever, or grab something or grab a calculator on your phone or if you have one handy to figure this out, this is not a mathematical equation for forgiveness. Jesus here is, he's using hyperbole. He says, no, it's like 70 times seven, Peter. It's just, you just forgive. You just forgive. Now, this opens up all kinds of questions to us. If true forgiveness is infinite in God's kingdom, how do we make sure we don't become somebody's doormat? What does it really mean, forgiveness? Does that mean that somebody has to be forgiven? They have to understand this, that they've done wrong? And Jesus says, you know, no, there's no limits. True grace is just that. It's grace. It's not about trusting in the person. It's more than that. It's not that that doesn't matter, but it's more than that. Forgiveness is not just about them and who they are. It's about who you are and who Jesus is and what Christ has done in your life. Forgiveness at its essence is about who God is. True forgiveness is about who God is. It's a spiritual state between our relationship with God. Matthew 18 gives us both a spiritual and practical guide to forgiveness in the body of Christ. It's a guidebook for us to practice forgiveness and in forgiveness free people from what they've done to restore them to right standing in God's family and God's kingdom. In that sense, we have to understand in light of the cross, in light of God's mercy and the community we understand as Christians that forgiveness is foundational to the kingdom of God. I'll say that again. Forgiveness is foundational. It is a core component to us as God's people being a part of God's kingdom. It's foundational. It's absolutely essential to us doing it. It's a messy business, though. Let's get real. Forgiveness is messy because it's far easier for us to tear someone down, to accuse them, to, to dox them, and get out on social media and say, so-and-so did this, and they live here. Shame on them. I see politicians, all politicians, let's be fair, 
local, state, national, whatever, doing this all the time. Accusation is the currency of power in our world. But yet, forgiveness is foundational to God's kingdom, to God's way of doing it. So what is the difference? But think to yourself, what would Jesus' entire earthly kingdom, what would the church that he's left behind for us to be a part of and to grow until he comes again, what would it be like without reconciliation, both with us to God and to other people, as we talked about in some of these parables? The purpose of the church is to be God's conduits of grace to restore humanity, humanity to a right relationship with God. Think about it. If it's a messy business, we have to understand that forgiveness itself is messy and costly. It costs Jesus everything. Think about it. He tells this parable in Matthew 18 on his way to the cross. And think of what he says on the cross at places like Luke 23, 34, where he says, Father, forgive them because they do not know. They don't understand. Jesus says what they're doing. As he's nailed to the cross, Jesus is calling on his Father to forgive those who have crucified him. Forgiveness is foundational. And that's why Jesus tells this parable. And it's a straightforward parable. And from the very beginning, in, in verse 24, we understand that there was a servant that owed his master a lot of money, and a servant would owe their master. And we see here the, servant is, the servants are going to settle accounts, very much like the parable of the talents we've already studied. The master entrusts the servants with great sums of money. We understand that. If you remember when we looked at the parable of the talents, this is what happened in Jesus' world. This is what they would understand. So the servant likely handled accounts. He owed the master money. And in verse 24, we see the, the king, the king who, of course, represents God. He, he's owed a lot of money. And we're talking Tim Cook of Apple when your stock is about to split kind of money. Billionaire CEO kind of money. So what was he owed here? So look here in verse 24. When he began to settle accounts, one servant here who owed 10,000 talents was brought before him. Look what 10,000 talents equals in today's money. That's right, friends, 4.5 billion, with a B, dollars. Think about that. 4.5 billion dollars. That's a lot of scratch. That's more than Tim Cook has in his iBank or piggy bank or whatever it is that Tim Cook has where he keeps his money. Probably some, like, Swiss bank account or something. I don't know. But think about that. If you remember the parable of the talents, a talent equaled about a year's wages or perhaps more depending on the weight system. So the math in that, yeah, $4.5 billion. It's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. And shockingly, impossibly for us to understand, the king, who once again, this parable again, it represents Jesus. It represents God the Father, God. The king says... You know what? Don't worry about it. Look what the king says to him. Verses 26 and 27. At this point, the servant fell face down and said, Be patient with me, and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that servant had compassion, released him, and forgave him the loan. So very much like a mob movie. Fall before the mob boss, and you know, he makes you an offer you can't refuse. And, oh, I'll pay it back. I'm good for it. Now, how many of us, if we owed $4.5 billion, could really be good for it? Now, unless you're going to, like, rob a armored cars, like a parade of armored car full of gold bars right now when they're worth a lot, or I mean, it's going to be really hard to do that. 
You can't rob Fort Knox. They don't have a lot of gold there anymore. Believe me, I've seen it. You can't. You can't pay it back. The debt is just too large. It's far too large. And yet, the servant's willing. He goes, I'll spend the rest of my life. Just don't put my family and I into jail. Remember we learned about this, some of the other parables, about how that's, how, that's what happened if you owed the debt. But look at the king says, hold on. I forgive you the debt. Don't even worry about it. $4.5 billion. You know what? Don't worry about it. Now, how would you and I feel if we were forgiven that kind of debt? We'd messed up. We'd lost that much money from our master. We invested it all in, I don't know, Taco Bell's menu never changing. We bet the Taco Bell would never change their menu, and they took away all the good things that you like to eat there. And I'm still angry about that, Taco Bell, if you're watching my sermon this morning. But anyhow, it's all gone. The shame, the hurt, and the king says, you're good. You're good. And he goes out from there. And of course, he sees his fellow servant, and he hugs him, and he says, life is amazing, God is good, let's have a wonderful day. High five. Or maybe it's a foot high five with social distance, I don't know. That's not what he does. That's not what he does. Look what happens. He goes out, he sees one of his servants, he found a fellow servant who owed him 100 denarii, and he grabbed him and started choking him and said, pay what you owe. And how much did he owe? A denarii was a day's wages for a laborer, and he owed him $7,000. $7,000. That's, that's a lot of money, let's be honest. $7,000 is not, that's a lot of walking around money. But think about how Jesus' audience would have heard this. And this is how we need to hear it in our world, in our terms, in our wealth understanding. You were just forgiven $4.5 billion in debt. You go out and see a dude that owes you $7,000 and you pin him to the wall and choke him and throw him in jail. Instantly. You just walk out of the king's presence. You see somebody and you beat him down because they owe you $7,000. That's the hard attitude that Jesus wants us to understand here that is unacceptable. The greatest moment of freedom and redemption we could probably ever imagine is given to this servant, and he celebrates it by choking out another servant who owes a fraction to him of what he owed the king. Exactly the same fate he has been spared, he wants to the fullest extent to be visited upon this other servant for far less than what he had done. And the other servants, they see what happened, and they go to the king and they report what happens to the king. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Clearly the servant didn't understand the power and the weight of the mercy he had received because he doesn't want to share it with someone else. And remember what Jesus says at the beginning of this parable. He says, the kingdom of heaven 
the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of redemption, is like this parable. And friends, we are the citizens of that kingdom. Like that rich, powerful, measurable redemption and mercy, the servant experienced it. But like him, do we see it? Do we understand it? Have we internalized it in our heart and our soul? Has that mercy changed the way we interact? We love and serve and forgive. Yes, forgive others. It's a hard issue. And we see this clearly in verse 34. Verse 34, they talk about this in this passage. Look here in verses 34 and 35. And because he was angry... His master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. So also my heavenly Father will do, will do to you unless every one of you forgives his brother or sister from your heart. When you practice contempt and unforgiveness and accusation, God's not just hurt. He's angry. I talked to our elders about this on Thursday. There's enough anger in our world right now to fill up the ocean. Some of the concerns and issues are certainly righteous things that should have a righteous level of anger. But if we understand that we're sinful people and that other people are sinful beings, if we understand that grace is what changes lives, why is it that we as Christians practice so much contempt in what we say and what we post and what we tweet to each other right now? In a world that's somewhat physically cut off where we are digitally more connected to others, why are we saying things that we're saying, posting things that we're posting? If you think Jesus cares about your witty meme that tears someone else down that you disagree with politically, the mocking way you nail other people. If you think Jesus, if you think God the Father is happy about that, you need to pay attention to what's in this parable. God is angry with us when we who have received such great mercy don't forgive other people. But you may say to me, I didn't lose a pencil topper. I didn't have something like that. Someone just didn't say something mean about me. Someone absolutely terribly hurt me. I do understand. And in no way am I trying to minimize what they've done. Yet I will maximize and magnify the glory of God's grace and that his freedom, his redemption, and his mercy is greater then no matter what you've experienced, God's mercy is greater and able to change lives. In the depths of our being, God wants to transform us in ways that we can never imagine. And for us to be his power to transform the world from the place of accusation and bitterness and anger and contempt we see today, we have to be those who have been completely forgiven and let God forgive and heal us. And sometimes that means we have to go to counseling. We have to seek forgiveness from others. We have to make hard and painful steps because forgiveness is a messy process. It is both spiritual and practical. And it's something that we have to do. But as we do it, the reason Jesus tells us we have to do it is because he's angry that he, we're not accepting God's grace and living God's grace and we're not letting God's redemption claim us. We're fighting against it. 
But God will not be stopped. He's going to change your life and mine because his grace is irresistible. And because of that, we're going to learn here as we close a little bit about forgiveness, again, spiritually and practically. We're going to learn that forgiveness is something we own. It's something that must be grown. And it's something that we make known. Forgiveness is something we own, must be grown, and we make it known. That's what forgiveness is. First of all, how it's owned. We must own our forgiveness, and that's not to say we pay the price ourselves, because like the servant in the story, we can't pay the price. We can't repay the price of our sins. The standard is perfection. Be holy as I am holy, God says. We can't do that. But yet, we can understand forgiveness, and we can understand what it means that we've been forgiven, and that will motivate us for healing and to offer forgiveness for others. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, look what he says, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man, but I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them. Think about what that means. The problem with sin is we deceive ourselves that we're a little better and everyone else is a little worse. As those devoted to God's word in the Reformed tradition, we understand this idea of total depravity. We're not all as bad as we could be, but we're all equally able of being horrific sinners in every possible way. Not any part of our being has been spared the effects of sin. It's got all of us. It doesn't mean it gets all of us all the time. But therefore, by the grace of God, do not you and I do the most horrific of things. We've got to own our own sinfulness. We've got to own it. And that's what Jesus is calling us to understand He reminds us we forgive our brothers and sisters not for their sake, not because we just want them to feel better. It's about our hearts being changed. It's about us understanding the power of the cross. And because it has swept over us, we cannot help but share it with other people. We have to own our own sinfulness and our own grace. What is our excuse? We've been hurt. Yes, some of you have been deeply hurt, and I'm not minimizing that, but I magnify the power of the cross. The debt is real, the pain is real, the wrong is real, but the grace of God is greater than even the deepest sin that we have done or what has been done to us. And Christ is here to help us on a path of healing spiritually that we can forgive spiritually and practically. That has great and positive effects on our world as well. Forgiveness changes lives. It frees other people from the bonds of sin as well. But we cannot hold on to that grudge or hurt or anger and hold on to Jesus at the same time. You can't do it. We have to choose. And that's the problem with this servant. God's angry at him, but he was so angry at the fellow servant, he wouldn't forgive him. Remember, sinfulness leads to accusation, anger, bitterness. Own your sin. Let the grace of God free you so that you understand what it means to be free because you're going to want to share that freedom with other people. And in that, then what happens is there is growth. And that's what I mean. 
Forgiveness is something that has to be grown. Look at Ephesians 4. Therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, this is Paul again, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received. This is for us, church, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep, in, to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. If you look at the words in that passage in Ephesians 4, if you look at that this week, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, write that down. Take a look at it again this week. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, keeping every effort to keep unity through the Spirit and peace. That's the opposite of the world we're living in right now. Think about that. Forgiveness and mercy are the underlying transforming powers that our world desperately needs, and it's what the gospel, it's what God's grace is all about. And the funny thing, while forgiveness is awkward and messy and imperfect, it is simultaneously the most freeing and healing thing, not just for the one who's forgiven, yes, but also for the one who forgives. We grow and we heal when we are able to forgive people. It's the greatest thing. It's God's grace. It's the power of the cross manifest in us as a conduit into the life of another person. And it transforms them, but God's grace certainly continues, even in that moment, to transform and grow us as people. The cancel culture stuff is accusation, anger, rage, bitterness. It leaves us feeling empty and defeated and angry. But God's grace, it creates peace, it creates unity, it creates growth and healing and satisfaction in God beyond all other circumstances in your past, your present, and your future. Grown. It's important. It has to happen. The last thing is that forgiveness is something that has to be known. It has to be known. Look here at James 2.3. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Endurance. What does that mean? Quite simply, God is not going to waste any of the hurts you've experienced, any of the times you've been hurt that you need to forgive someone or you've hurt someone and you need to seek their forgiveness. God will use all those things to reconcile and to make himself apparent and present when you forgive or when you are forgiven, God's grace is always at the center. God is glorified and he's made known if we would just act on this. In a world full of accusation where God seems to be nowhere, if we would practice forgiveness, God would be manifest everywhere we forgive. And church, that is our call, that we would do this and that God would raise us up and grow us as his people. And yes, it's hard and yes, it's messy, but Jesus here is reminding us it is the key to understanding his kingdom. Forgiveness is foundational to the kingdom of God. Dr. John MacArthur puts it like this. The offenses against you are the trials that perfect you. Look at that. The offenses against you are the trials that perfect you. And what he's saying here is that God is going to use all these things to make you more like him, like the same Christ who forgave others from the cross. The same Christ that is telling his followers not seven times, but as many times as it takes. That's what it means, that we would forgive, that we would love, that we would share the hope and grace of Jesus Christ, 
in who we are and in how we live our lives, that we would all be set free by God's rich mercy. This week, make a list. Maybe there's somebody you need to talk to to be forgiven. Maybe there's someone you need to seek forgiveness from. I bring these up once in a while, but as we pray, ask God to reveal to you, where is there unforgiveness in my life? Whether it needs to be sought or whether it needs to be given, what is holding me down? Maybe I need to talk to somebody to be forgiven, to be freed from this hurt that's holding me down. Maybe I don't want to forgive myself for something. It can be all kinds of things. But whatever that is this day, true freedom, true satisfaction comes in laying down those burdens and to begin that process of healing. It might be messy, but friends, it's worth it. And that's the promise our Father gives us. He can redeem and will redeem and use all those things to not only free others, but to grow you up and to perfect you, to make you more like Him. Let's pray. Father, today that we would, in all these ways, Lord, in all these ways that we would become more your people. God, use us. God, transform us. God, in all these things, bring to our heart at this moment the places we need to seek forgiveness. Lord, those we need to seek forgiveness from, that we would know the grace we have experienced from you, that we would share it with other people. And God, in all things, we would belong to you. That we would, in our heart's deepest places, know the cross. That we would cling to the cross and let go of all those hurts, of all those pains, and of all those sorrows, that we would begin that messy process of redemption and forgiveness in our own hearts. And Lord, that we would share that with others, that they would know forgiveness, that they would know how great a depth sin is created in their heart just as we do and that massive amount of sin that we know the depths of that whatever it is God it may seem it should seem God if we know the magnificent grace of you so much smaller as your grace becomes so much bigger in our lives God I pray that that process would happen no matter how hard and how long it takes that we would know give and live forgiveness in Jesus name amen